Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Chitheads. My guest today is Richard Smoley. Richard Smoley has over 35 years' experience studying and practicing mystical spirituality and philosophy. His latest book is The Deal, A Guide to Radical and Complete Forgiveness. Other works of his are Inner Christianity, A Guide to the Esoteric Tradition, The Dice Game of Shiva, How Consciousness Creates the Universe, Conscious Love, Insights from Mystical Christianity, Forbidden Faith, The Secret History of Gnosticism, The Essential Nostradamus, and Hidden Wisdom, A Guide to the Western Inner Traditions, with the, which he wrote with Jay Kinney. Richard is the former editor of Gnosis, a journal of the Western Inner Traditions. Currently, he is editor of Quest, Journal of the Theosophical Society in America. His website is innerchristianity.com. Richard's latest book, How God Became God, What Scholars Are Really Saying About God and the Bible, was published in June 2016. So hello, Richard. Thanks so much for joining me. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's a, it's really nice to chat with you. As I was, um, I first encountered your 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 work actually um, because my partner gave me the Dice Game of Shiva as a gift, and and the re- reading that book was really affirmative for me in a lot of ways because um, I found that I discovered that you and I had sort of a similar um, uh, development co- kind of having a disillusionment disillusionment with the Western traditions, Western philosophical traditions and what they were able to offer in terms of um, the kind of more realized uh, wisdom that you talk a lot about in your books. So I would love to uh, maybe first start off with having you take us on that story a little bit of uh, that you explored in the Dice Game of Shiva of how you discovered um, the more mystical traditions and what sort of led you to this lifelong path that you're on. Well, my father was always interested in these subjects when I was a kid. He had books about Edgar Cayce and UFOs. This was in the 60s. He had a lot of those things around, and I read them. Mm-hmm. So there was an interest in the background. Um, I didn't do much with it when I was an undergraduate, but um, after I went to Oxford, and part of my degree was in uh, philosophy and literature, uh, particularly classical literature, and um, Oxford is a curious place to study philosophy because you're not studying it the way you would study it in an American um, academic institution. Yeah. You're basically, it, it, there is its own school of philosophy. It would be like going to the Academy of Plato or, uh, you know, Aristotle's Lyceum. You're learning a particular type of philosophy, which is Oxford philosophy. Um, and I found it really very arid. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was very, very, um, it took materialism uh, broadly defined as, uh, you know, almost self-evidently true. Mm-hmm. Um, it, uh, you know, certainly, I, I don't think they really understood Plato particularly, particularly well, mm-hmm. uh, even though, I mean, a part of the uh, course involved reading the Republican Greek. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure they really actually kind of understood the different levels of consciousness that Plato was talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and while I was there, more or less accidentally, I uh, came across a group that was studying the Kabbalah, which is one aspect of the Western mystical traditions. And um, the people I met through that, uh, some of whom I'm still in touch with, I thought were very, very high quality. Yeah. And there really seemed access to what I would call knowledge in a real sense, rather than 
shall we say, using Plato's words, uh, say opinion. Yeah, yeah. Um, so and it's sort of like that, the difference between small K knowledge and big K knowledge, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So uh, once I finished there, I uh, went to San Francisco, and my interest in spirituality continued to grow. And I studied a lot of different things out there because it was, you know, this is San Francisco in the 80s, and that was really kind of the height of the New Age in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I studied things like A Course in Miracles, Tibetan Buddhism, and the Gurdjieff work. Around the age of 30, I realized, well, if I'm going to be a writer and get a job as a writer uh, or an editor, I may as well get a job in a field that interests me in England. So I started writing around to various magazines that published on these topics at the time. Now, there were a lot more of them. They were smaller. Uh, It was a great time for small magazines um, uh, in a way that now really isn't. Uh, And one of them was Gnosis which had just gotten started. It was a journal of the Western inner tradition, so it was very close to my core interests. And I started writing for them. I ended up uh, working as editor uh, for a long time, which gave me a lot of exposure to a lot of different um, angles and um, aspects of, you know, Western esotericism, although that wasn't, you know, rigidly defined. Um, so I was able kind of both personally and professionally to, you know, take a course that uh, was... Um, you know, a, a little bit more philosophical in what I would say the old sense uh, is, and rather than, you know, the academic philosophy of that time and the present, which are more or less the same, at least in terms of outlook and, and uh, ideas, uh, which I found very, very unsatisfying. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to go, go a little bit, because what into that sort of distinction between what has become kind of the culturally sanctioned notion of Western philosophy and this other stream that now we're calling the mystical traditions or the mystical stream. But really, from what I understand, you know, at one point they were there was no distinction between them. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, what were the historical preoccupations that led to this kind of divergence of, you know, what we will call, you know, the Western academically sanctioned wet philosophical tradition from the, the esoteric traditions? Well, initially, going back to the ancient Greeks, uh, as you say, there was no difference between the two. Yeah. Uh, Pythagoras had what we would call an esoteric school. Mm. Plato had something similar And you could argue that what Plato was, in a way, trying to do was express the insights of the ancient wisdom, esoteric knowledge, Mm. in the new philosophical language that the sophists uh, had developed in 5th century Greece. Um, So those currents kind of kept surfacing, and there was no real difference uh, all throughout antiquity. Now, the big break came with Christianity— where, uh, and, you know, Christianity rapidly assumed an extremely dogmatic form. I'm, start, I'm talking about the 4th century A.D. and on. Right. And uh, you really had to believe that um, or, you know, get your tongue torn out, which happened sometimes. <laughs> um, and although there was still a strong mystical element in Christianity at the time, and which continued mostly in the Eastern Orthodox Church— mm. In the West, uh, it all kind of came to a head in uh, the high Middle Ages with scholasticism, the rediscovery of Aristotle. Mm. And 
although there are a lot of intellectual currents that fed into this, one thing that was going on also was the, uh, uh, an increasing mistrust of mystical experience, yeah. because it could so easily lead to heresy in the eyes of the Catholic Church. And so more and more that became shunted aside. The uh, Aristotelian logic and rationalism became the official philosophy of the Catholic Church. As far as I know, it still is. <laughs> Scholasticism. Yeah. Um, and when the Protestants broke with all of this, um, they didn't want the traditions of the Church, which they no longer trusted. So all they had was the Bible, sola scriptura, as a source of authority. Mm-hmm. And more and more they focused increasingly on the literal meaning of the Bible as the sole meaning of the Bible. Mm-hmm. And to carry the conversation on further, uh, by the 19th century, or the 18th century, the literal truth of the Bible was seen as being all there was. And you had two choices with this literal Bible. You could either accept it wholeheartedly and just, it's all true, because mm-hmm. God said so, which gives you fundamentalism and evangelical Christianity. Yeah. Or you could actually delve into the actual literal truth of the Bible from a historical, uh, critical perspective. Yeah. And it turns out that a lot of the things that the Bible said happened didn't happen. And liberal Protestantism is, in a way, kind of in a crisis because of this, because um, they don't really know what to do with the Bible anymore, except use it as kind of like a, a storybook with, uh, you know, things to lecture um, on on Sunday. Mm-hmm. And that enormous crisis of faith of liberal Protestantism in itself, um, I mean, has it's shaken America in political ways as well as um, religious ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, that's a short uh, capsule of a 2,500-year process. Yeah, well, that's a good, that's a very nice abridged version. So to go back a little bit to, I want to go back to what you said about um, the mystics sort of not being permitted. Was that, do you think that was as a result of the institutionalization of the church that that somehow, you know, those that were engaged in or having mystical experiences, they couldn't be kind of um, controlled by the institution or the institution itself couldn't make sense of what they were doing in, in such a way that maybe the mystical was actually um, radically opposed to the kind of institutional framework that the church was offering? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Okay. And if you want to take examples, uh, probably one of the most famous uh, was Meister Eckhart right. uh, in the early 14th century, who was very learned in all of the scholastic ideas that I just mentioned. Uh, he, uh, he knew the academic side of it back the front, and he was um, a lecturer and a professor in those areas, and that's why he's called Meister, um, yeah. uh, Master. Oh, um, yeah. But his own mystical experiences led him to, to a more transcendent um, God, beyond the God of the Trinity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Church didn't like this. Yeah. And uh, he was condemned by the Inquisition, but he had the good fortune to die before they could really put it into effect, so they didn't have to burn him at the stake or anything. Uh, so he basically died at just a very opportune moment. <laughs> I, uh, I guess that's good for him. So, was, yeah. So, um, so now I want to I want to talk a little bit about maybe we could explore the 
you know, we've talked about, you know, the difference between the mystical and the institutional, but what would you say if you were try if you were to try to describe, you know, um, the, the fundamental teachings of kind of the mystical traditions, if we can kind of lump them all together, I know that's a generalization, but what is the essence of the, the, the kind of, um, the Western mystical traditions and their teachings? Well, one important aspect of them, and I think it's, this is more or less universal, is that there are different levels of reality. Mm. Uh, the physical level that we take for granted is there. You can't really deny that. Yeah. But it is only one of several, and it is generally considered to be the lowest. And these other states not only exist, but can be um, accessed through higher states of consciousness, through mystical practice, um, and one can connect these higher worlds with the lower world. So in terms of gaining deeper experience and also in terms of providing kind of a service to the world in that this kind of circulation between the upper and lower worlds needs to happen. Uh, the most famous image of it is Jacob's Ladder in the Bible with the angels ascending and descending. This, in a sense, represents a kind of cosmic process. Mm. Uh, and so the, the idea of the Western esoteric tradition is not only to develop oneself, you know, so that you have at least some access to these higher levels, but you're, you're able to um, integrate them better with um, reality as we know it. Mm -hmm. That's, I mean, there are many things, but I would say that's one of the central and maybe most important uh, points um, about uh, the Western esoteric tradition. Okay, so one of the things that you explore in your in in your book, the Dice Game of Shiva, is um, is the kind of the intersection a little bit of 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 some of these Western esoteric teachings with with some of the the Eastern ones, and on, on the face of it, you know, do you see any? Are these like just are are they? Um, easily translatable, or do we run into any conflicts when we try to map these two onto each other? Or have you found that to be, have you found any problems in your own work trying to map them on each other? Um, I would say that there are general parallels. Yeah. And that the resemblances are much more striking and important than the differences. Right. But you can't just make a blanket statement saying they're all saying the same thing. Right. There are, there are differences, and there are significant differences. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a balanced view of that would be, yeah, there, there are some pretty important universal themes that you see in Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, uh, um, esoteric Christianity, the Kabbalah, and so on and so on. But they don't, they're not all saying exactly the same thing. Um, they're... Um, you know, in a way, their theologies may be more different than um, their, well, I don't know, maybe, maybe their theologies are more different than practices, mm -hmm. the Buddhists being non-theistic, yeah. um, you know, and so on. Mm. Um, you know, with Buddhism, I mean, it, it's interesting that, um, how would I put it, um, you know, in a sense, um, theology recapitulates psychology. Notice that the Buddhists say, there is no self, no ultimate self, anatta, no self. It's the, cent the central doctrine of Buddhism, right? Well, so they, they don't have a personal God, right? The, the, there's a correspondence between the way we are and the way, shall we say, the absolute, the divine is. Mm -hmm. Christianity, you know, believes that there are, we are 
persons in some radical and, you know, inalienable sense. And by George, God is person two or three of them or, you know, however you want to construe that. So it's interesting to see those parallels and how, you know, we, we're always seeing um, God in our own, through our own lens. And, um, you know, there is the famous quote from the philosopher Xenophanes, who said, was it, 6th century BC, uh, who said, if horses had gods, they would make them look like horses. Mm-hmm. And now there's an interesting, I mean, to elaborate just on that for a minute, this um, anthropomorphization um, is impossible to avoid. Yeah. Because we're humans, we're going to see the world in, in an anthropocentric, human-centered way, because that's who we are. And I think we have to be faithful to that experience. Um, on the other hand, we also have to consider the possibility that our human-centered vision um, is not absolute or universal. So there's, you know, in a way, it, it calls for a kind of humility in recognizing both of those um, aspects. And I think that's true of both Eastern and Western traditions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what I, what I think is really interesting about all the things that we're talking about is, you know, there are some people that are doing, I'm kind of back to this theme of, of the, the conversation between Eastern and Western traditions. And, you know, there's some people who are trying to do work with having cross-cultural philosophical dialogue with, with Eastern traditions, but then with Western philosophical tradition as it sort of stands in the academy. But it seems like there's a much more fruitful um, engagement to be had, you know, on, on the terms of what you're doing, where there's a, where we're really looking at where they were exploring the same sort of realizations. And when you were mentioning um, practices of, of this kind, the practices that um, would cultivate this kind of a realization, is there evidence that there were, um, that, some of those practices were meditation practices. And I'm asking that because, you know, we often think about meditation as something that came from India and Buddhism and, 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 and Hindu, various Hindu traditions. But is there is there precedent for meditative practices within the Western esoteric tradition? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, there are. Um, one thing you have to be aware of is that Meditation is ideally transmitted orally. Right. That's just, you can learn it from a book, but it's actually better to learn from someone who actually has done it and you know some experience. In it. Yeah. Consequently, um, if you go back far enough, there's there's very little um, description of the practices they use because they would have been given orally. And if you go back to, you know, say, Jewish mystical texts of the time of Christ, they, what they're talking about is what they've recorded in their own visions. They did not particularly say how they got there. Right, right. And so the actual practices they used, um, they, I mean, there was something called the Merkava in uh, uh, Jewish, early Jewish mysticism, which means chariot. And it obviously was some kind of inner, shall we say, psychic vehicle by which you, um, you know, could ascend the higher levels to the, uh, uh, Hekalo, the palaces, as they call them in those days. Mm-hmm. So those practices were there. Um, it, it's uh, just very, very hard to say exactly what they were. Right. Uh, I'm, I'm convinced that some of these practices did survive more or less in, uninterrupted. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Eastern Orthodox tradition has uh, an enormous uh, tradition of hesychastic um 
spirituality, from the Greek hesychia, meaning um, stillness. Mm. Uh, and um, that seems to have been more or less continuously pursued from at least uh, the third century AD to now. Wow. And is that like a seated meditation sort of? Is that what it looks like? Or is it, is there some kind well, of other? Well, here's, I, I, it is not a type of meditation that I've practiced myself in any mm. consistent or regular way. So I'm going to give you the bare bones of it. Sure. Um, and, and, um, but originally it was the repetition of, um, a verse. Uh, this verse in the oldest form is from the 70th Psalm. It says, Oh God, make speed to save me. Oh Lord, make haste to help me. We say that over and over and over and over again. Later, it was changed to something. Similar. Now that, if you notice, is not really all that theological. Mm-hmm. There's God and you and help, right? That's yeah. pretty basic theologically. Later on, it got much more elaborate, and it became uh, called the prayer of the heart or the prayer of Jesus, which is in its most common form, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Notice how much more theology is in that statement mm-hmm. than there was in the first one. Here, oh my God, just help. Yeah. Um, and, you know, this is kind of a fairly common thing that things get elaborated. Yeah. Well, in this particular practice, the idea was you were to say this, and eventually it's called prayer of the heart because it would be both coordinated in the sense that it, your heart, uh, which is, you know, of course, pumps automatically rather than volitionally, we hope. Will uh, take it on, and the heart, the, the prayer becomes as it were embodied in the heartbeat. Wow, this is a long, uh, detailed practice. Its center is um, on a peninsula called Mount Athos in Greece, mm-hmm. uh, which is the center of Orthodox monasticism. Um, women are not allowed on that whole peninsula to this day. Um, oh dear, even uh, I mean, just no women, not even female animals. Um, How do they keep the female animals out? <laughs> well, you know, female domestic animal. Oh, I, I think they hunt down like female wolves, and, <laughs> and I think they do a lot of female cats because um, you have to be pro- pragmatic about the rodent population. Yeah, a very beautiful and profound sight. Uh, uh, I mean, S I T E sight. Um, yeah, yeah. I'd like to go sometime, although I haven't. Yeah. Now, what, you know, what really stands out to me as something really beautiful about what you're describing in this practice is is that it, I mean, it sounds like a mantra, you know, we, you hear about mantras in, in the Eastern traditions and, and, and then also the, the heartbeat, you know, uh, it, you know, the, the hurdayam in, in Shaivism, the, the sacred heart and, and the pulsation of spanda, and then the kind of bija mantra uh, meditation practice. It's a part of that is sort of this kind of, it's a beat, it's a pulse, you know, it's, it's sort of, it becomes, this pulsation as you practice it more and more. And, and it seems to be in, a, in some ways very analogous to what you're talking about. And so I, w- I wonder, you know, is, do you think this is something that arises from this just primordial vibration and understanding of the pulsation of existence? Or do you think there was a cross, there was a cross cultural, like historical intersection that took place that led to these practices emerging, you know, related to one another? Yeah, and this is, in a sense, kind of the root question right. uh, at much of, you know, religious uh, studies. That is to say, you have all of these independent uh, things, which actually resemble each other quite a bit. 
Um, shamanism is an even more striking example because it's so universal and um, so uh, unstructured, so to speak. But, um, so was there a primordial center? And some say there were, there was, it obviously been prehistoric times out of which all this radiated, or rather, uh, which as a theory is called diffusionism, mm -hmm. or what you might call the archetypal theory, that is, well, this grew up independently because this is, in a way, the way things are and the way we are. So people were bound to discover it independently, and people being the same, it would look the same. And so those are the kind of the two poles of this discussion. And I, I'm not radically in favor of one or the other. Mm -hmm. I mean, they don't even need to exclude one another in that, well, one reason if it diffused would be that this is the way things are. This, you know, Jung's concept of the archetypes, you know, this is the way the psyche is structured. Mm -hmm. So it's going to come up no matter where. Um, but I think those are kind of two poles, and they're both uh, being worth being aware of. Um, and I, I would, you know, be very cautious about, you know, trying to fit everything into one slot or the other. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so now I want to shift gears a little bit, and I want to talk about one of my favorite topics. Uh, people who listen to this podcast have heard me talk about this, you know, a few times with different people, but I, I really, I, I enjoy talking about it because I think it's such an important conversation um, as, you know, in referencing one of the main obstacles to um, our culture's ability to engage with these practices and these teachings, which is scientism or, you know, materialism. And I, I know you feel strongly about this as well from what I've read in your book. Um, so can you talk a little bit about what scientism is and, and what scientism is, for example, as distinguished from science as a practice and, and how scientism is an obstacle to our, to engaging with, with, with what we're talking about? Well, probably one of the most important questions our civilization is facing right now. Mm -hmm. And it pervades a lot more political, religious discourse than we might even think. Yeah. But scientism, science is a method. Yeah. Um, it's, by the way, a completely amoral method because you can conduct, <laughs> as been done, a perfectly valid, legitimate scientific experiment even if you're committing atrocities in the process. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's been done. Yeah. Um, so it's not ethical, it's not spiritual, it's a method. And it finds out certain things about the universe, certain things that it can measure. Yeah. Scientism, now many scientists are also uh, adherents of scientism, um, teaches that or holds or implies that what science tells us about reality is the truth and nothing but the truth, and that there's no other truth. Yeah. So all evidence that contradicts this, in a very, which is extremely unscientific, but it's done, mm -hmm. any evidence that, that contradicts that has to be uh, derided or dismissed or ignored. One favorite technique is it's anecdotal. Well, that happened only once, so we can't perform it. Well, the whole history of the human race is anecdotal. <laughs> you can't repeat uh, you know, the World War II is not a, a, a repeatable experiment, fortunately. Thank so if, if you're talking about human experience and way we, yeah, it's all anecdotal. So that doesn't help too much. Now, my particular criticism of scientism at this point is it's 
in this really very funny corner, which is, according to science, and this is the hot topic now, um, our cognition is limited and conditioned by structures of our nervous systems, right? Bees can see colors we can't, right? So we know that scientifically. And yet science is turning around and saying, this cognition of ours is the real thing. This is the way it really is. Now, these are two totally contradictory uh, beliefs to hold. And um, there's a reason that science hasn't been held uh, more to account for, in my opinion. Yeah. And that is there is this fear among the intelligentsia that if you dump scientism, you know, everybody will have to go back to um, believing that the world was created in 6000 B.C. So, I mean, the intellectual world feels that it's, it's got either scientism or fundamentalism. Right. And that's kind of it. So anyone, you know, fundamentalism is, uh, shall we say, problematic for many of us. So, you know, it feels as if scientism is the only thing uh, we have left as a civilization. That's why people are clinging to it in a rather desperate way. Yeah. It's sad, and it, it's, it, you know, it, it, it has, as I say, far more repercussions than just uh, uh, intellectual ones. But I believe that's what's going on. Mm. 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 Thank you for that. That's really good. Um that's a really good, concise exploration of that, of that issue. So, um, so you're, but you're also, um, you know, there's been a lot of talk about, um, the reconciliation, you know, we had Tao of physics, which I actually read and really loved that book. And, and, um, but I appreciate your, your, your comment about this, that you are dubious about the reconciliation of spiritual truths with science. And, and I, and I, and I, I can, on the base of it or on the face of it, I can understand why, because it seems like usually when that's brought up, it's like the spiritual truths are, are, are deemed somehow more legitimate as soon as they have the scientific, you know, foundation. So we're falling back into that scientistic, you know, mindset. Right. So, um, so does that get to the heart of what your, your dubiousness is, or is there, is there something more to it? Um, well, for one thing, go back to something I said earlier, I mean, a lot of scientific evidence is um, simply ignored. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of parapsychology research is as rigorously scientific but uh, as anything else. Um, but what happens is, well, it doesn't prove our little worldview, so we're going to toss it out. Um, you know, so that's that's certainly um, you know a part of it. But could you uh, refresh my memory about what the question was? Uh, oh yeah, no. Um, the I, your you, you challenge the idea that we can reconcile scientific oh, truth yes, with okay. spiritual truths. Yeah. Well, here's the thing: um, science is a method, and its findings are and must be provisional. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, Karl Popper, who's the foremost philosopher of science in the 20th century, said that a scientific theory is falsifiable. Mm -hmm. That is to say, there must be some way you can prove it wrong. Mm -hmm. And if you haven't so far, it's true, but still only provisionally true, because somebody can prove it wrong later. That is the closest you can get to absolute truth in science. Now, this is important in its effect on spirituality, because if you take spirituality and try to use science as evidence for it, what happens if the evidence changes? 
Like, for example, in the 19th century, uh, there is a scientific uh, concept called the luminiferous ether, uh, which was kind of this unknown substance that transmitted light. Mm. It was necessary to make certain equations work out. Well, then they did some experiments and they found there was no such thing as this luminiferous ether. So all of the spiritual people would say, well, our Akash is, is, you know, uh, is the same as the luminiferous ether. Well, now it's just been decided that that doesn't exist. Yeah. So what happens when your quantum realities uh, and your uh, relativity uh, theories are either proven wrong or provisionally true or true only in um, a highly um, delineated set of circumstances? You're in the trouble. Yeah. So, you know, that's, that is a problem. Um, and, uh, you know, I think there is a point at which we simply have to say that science is um, a very precise, good method uh, for dealing with certain things, uh, and that it does not give us a whole picture either of the universe or even more importantly, the universe that we as human beings can experience cognitively. Yeah. And if you're kind of like limiting everything to just what you can measure with your little instruments, um, well, there's a lot, you know. I mean, there is such a thing as human intuition. It turns out that it's often smarter than human reason. Yeah. I and mean, how many books about this are, are there out there now? Yeah. So, um, you know, it's a very constrained view uh, another problem with it is uh, here, it's very interesting to look for circularities in all these arguments. Yes, love uh, circularities. <laughs> um, because the great thing about one of science's great um, axioms is that everything is quantifiable. Everybody, everything in the universe can be uh, described by mathematical equations. Right. Well. That's kind of begging the question, because might it not be the case that the only reality you're seeing or dealing with is the quantifiable part? Yeah. There's an enormous part of reality out there that is not quantifiable in any uh, current sense. Yeah. Um, you're kind of basically assuming there isn't. You're assuming the sense kind of <laughs> what you're trying to prove. Yeah. So. Um, you know, and there are a lot of funny little uh, problems like that uh, with scientism as a religion and, um, you know, as, as kind of this touchstone of truth. The other thing is, of course, <laughs> emotionally, it's incredibly unsatisfying. <laughs> there are deep human needs for meaning. Yeah. And if there's a need for meaning, um, that points to the fact that it may exist. Mm. Like, oh, would you ever feel thirsty if there were no such thing as water? I don't think so. Um, but all of this has to be set aside, and it has to be dismissed almost a priori, and it's just depressing. Yeah, it is. You know, it's, it, for a lot of people, it's going to be easier just to go back and, you know, yeah, I believe the Bible, what it says, because um, yeah. it at least provides some meaning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Yeah, no, when, when, what you said, just to go back to what you said about the— the um, grounding spiritual truths with science. I, and I hadn't sort of thought about it this way, but I, I like what you're bringing attention to, which is that, you know, on the one hand, um, science is always changing. That's the one thing that we know about science is that science is always changing. So when you're trying to ground it in 
in scientific truths, you're also, you're, first of all, you're assuming that science is going to stop changing, and you're assuming that the, scientific, the, sci the science that has emerged is the last science, which is, you know, doubly problematic, you know? Yeah. So and, you know, the other, the other thing about, you know, the, the, the various <laughs> notice, um, you know, if you want to talk about physics, at least as I understand it, and I'm no specialist, mm -hmm. what do you get? Well, what is matter? Well, it's a bunch of little particles moving around, okay? What are these particles made up of? Um, even littler particles moving around. <laughs> what are they? You know, I mean, you get this infinite regress. Yeah. Or you end up with a stopping point where you have these indivisible particles, like the old uh, indivisible atoms of Democritus. And those, of course, if they existed, would be the most mysterious things of all. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're... It's starting to look a little bit like, um, well, in the early modern era, there was a um, the Ptolemaic geocentric theory of the universe was held, mm -hmm. and this did not explain the retrograde motions of the planets very well. Uh, they came up with this theory of epicycles, where the planet is orbiting the Earth, but in these kind of littler cycles. And that explained it actually pretty well for a long time. But then as observations got more precise, they had to make more and more epicycles and more and more. And, you know, eventually it became this kind of, you know, this contraption that uh, obviously needed a simpler and more uh, direct explanation. I cannot help when I hear about 10-dimensional strings and that kind of thing. See, if, if physics at this point is not kind of like some kind of late Ptolemaic theory where everything has gotten so complicated uh, just to deal with its own problems that the whole thing needs to be revisioned entirely. Wow, that's interesting. Whether it will be or not, of course, I don't know. I'm not a scientist. Right, yeah, me neither. Well, we might find out in our lifetimes. Um, so, okay, so now I want to talk a little bit about, about um, your latest book, God, God, how God became God, because, you know, a lot of people who are in this, in the audience that listen to Chitheads are people who have, um, and I, and I speak actually for myself as well, who initially kind of were attracted to Eastern traditions because they require, they, they offered a spiritual solution that seemed somehow outside the, you know, Abrahamic notion of God and all of the, and all of the baggage that is entailed with that. So, so I know, you know, I know from reading your work and understanding your work that, you know, your conception of God is, is quite a bit different than that more narrow, um, um, my, well, maybe we'll say, you know, culturally, um, predominant view now. Um, so let's talk, let's talk a little bit about that for those that are, you know, listening to this, who maybe bristle a little bit about the word God, or even hearing mention of Jesus and, 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 and stuff that we've been sort of bringing up in conversation, you know, can you open our minds a little bit on, on the topic of God within, within, um, the way that you understand it? Mm -hmm. Well, um, I have two small sons and, um, not so long ago, one of them asked me what God is. You know, and I said, well, God is a source of everything. God is where everything came from. That seemed to satisfy him. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm repeating it now because it's still the best answer I've come up with. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there is this primordial source. Um, and to go back to a question we were talking about earlier, is this source personal? Right. Now, the Abrahamic religions, for the most part, have always argued that it is. 
Oh, and it's, you know, by the way, uh, it's not only personal, but um, we're the only people it likes. <laughs> uh, too bad for the rest of you. Yeah. Um, now, and the Eastern traditions, and this is one broad difference, tend to see this absolute in a much more personal sense, as, you know, Brahman, um, uh, Buddhists might call it shunyata, you know, this kind of primordial emptiness or openness, the Tao, that kind of thing. It's much more impersonal. Now, of course, if you actually want to think about it in fairly reasonably logical senses, um, it's, it, it's fair to assume that the source of this universe is not personal in a way that we're persons. But that much said, because we are persons and we've been generated by this universe in some way that um, nobody really understands, we can relate to this absolute in a personal way. So in a sense, both the impersonal and the personal views, I'm not going to say are correct, but are fruitful. Yeah. Um, and, you know, see, religion always wants to sell its own message, right? Why? Um, well, if you ask a Coke distributor what soft drink you, you should drink, you should drink Coke and only Coke. <laughs> Why would they say something else? If you went to the Pepsi distributor, he would tell you the same thing about Pepsi. And so, you know, religion has a vested interest in selling itself as the only answer. And I'm using kind of crassly commercial terms because, um, in a sense, it is kind of crassly commercial. Mm -hmm. um, even though it may have very little to do with, you know, the way things are, much of the doctrines of the Christian church um, came centuries after the time of Christ. Um, the early Christians did not believe, the Christians who wrote the New Testament, there are a lot of early Christians. We only know very much about the ones who wrote the New Testament. They didn't think Jesus was God, by the way. Mm -hmm. There was no doctrine of the Trinity. That was invented um, in the second century AD at the earliest. They thought Jesus was the incarnation of an angel. This angel had many names. He was called the archangel with many names, the son of man, the son of God, the logos, the word. Uh, this can um, be found in the Jewish mystical literature, philosophical literature of the time. That great angel, whose proper name was Metatron, um, was very, very important in Judaism at the time. I mean, he was even called a second god, which in a rigidly monotheistic faith is striking. What did the Christians do? Well, they decided that Jesus was the incarnation of this great angel, the Son of Man. The son, you know, so when the, when the priests are asking Jesus, you know, um, are you really saying you're the Son of Man? Well, if Jesus is just talking about being human, you know, they're not going to be too shocked about this. Um, <laughs> but if you understand that this is what the Son of Man meant at that time, A, it's shocking. Um, and B, um, explains a great deal that is otherwise completely mysterious. Now, that was lost later for, uh, for different reasons. So you always have to go back to the fact that um, what is taught today as Christianity and what was originally Christianity are two quite different things. Um, you also have to go to the fact that um, it would seem, you know, that Jesus emphasized different aspects of his teaching 
to different disciples. Which, you know, this guy thinks this way, I'm going to talk this way, this guy thinks that way, I'm going to talk that way. It's all perfectly reasonable. Yeah. Of course, later on, the guys go out and, you know, my way is the only way. Yeah. And um, as a uh, G.I. Gurdjieff once said, sooner or later, it all ends in people breaking one another's heads. Mm. Yeah. Um, nonetheless, and they're great problems of the literal truth of the Bible. That is what my book, How God Became God, is about. It's basically, you kind of know, as you know, as a, an intellectual, that at least some parts of the Bible are not literally true. Yeah. So which ones are and which ones aren't? Um, this work has been done. It's out there. It's not being hidden. But it hasn't been put in a very digestible form. Um, and the Bible, if you want to, uh, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, starts to become strictly historical around 850 B.C. Mm. With, a, 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 with the wicked king Ahab, uh, better known for his wicked wife Jezebel. But there are, there like there's they unearth Ahab stables, they unearth like steely that are contemporary referring to him. David and Solomon, who lived ostensibly a hundred years before, there's no evidence outside the Bible. Almost, you know, practically none. Solomon had this huge empire from went from Egypt to Egypt. There's nothing. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Not even one comb uh, from one of his thousand wives. <laughs> Which is starting to lead you to believe that those figures may have lived, but what the Bible is saying about it, uh, them is um, uh, a bit fictionalized. Yeah. After that, it does become historical. Yeah. Uh, like uh, about a year ago, someone dug up a little seal of um, the Hezekiah king of Judah, who reigned around 700 BC. Yeah, there's a seal of his. This is the part of the Bible that's historical. So, uh, you know, it's 700 BC. It's later than 850. So at that point, it starts. The history starts to come into focus. But before that, it's heavily, heavily, heavily legendary, yeah. including Moses and David and Solomon and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and not even going to deal with Genesis and the flood and all that sort of thing. That's the thing that uh, an intelligent person. You know, might want to know. Yeah. Um, Jesus is problematic for different reasons because the historical context is there. There was a Pontius Pilate. There was a temple. There were Pharisees and priests and whatnot. All that makes sense. But who he was, who he thought he was, and who he said he was, is highly controversial. Did he say he was the Son of Man, or was this put in his mouth later? Um. The answer is going to depend very, very much on which scholar you talk to. So my book is, uh, you know, How God Became God is an attempt to um, at least spell out the differences and to say, well, that is only the literal meaning. And the literal meaning was never meant to be the total meaning. Yeah. Our, you know, in the Jewish tradition, um, there are four levels of interpretation. Um, uh Great from the literal, the allegoric, the homiletic, however it's translated. The innermost meaning, of course, is what's called sowed or the mystical. Mm. And this was always known, except not by very many people. And the priests are not too interested in this because 
here's like another sociological fact about religion as I see it. Um, if a religion, you know, a religion spreads initially because of the spiritual power that it possesses innately, and the spiritual power, you know, obviously isn't possessed by its leaders, at least to some degree. Yeah. Well, the organization gets successful, and it becomes powerful. So the people who want to get into the organization and rise up are the ones who are interested in power. Right. They or may not have any spiritual knowledge, and uh, spiritual knowledge is usually pretty much a disadvantage if you're uh, kind of climbing the uh, ladder of power. Yes. If only because you're not going to be really very interested in it. If you have some spiritual knowledge, you're not going to really care about this. Yeah, yeah. So this is, and, and so religion ends up getting being bent into a, um, uh, you know, self-perpetuating institution whose interest is almost exclusively in that self-perpetuation. Yeah, it rem- reminds me of what the William James quote that organized religion, or what, what is it, organized religion destroyed the religious experience or something like that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, you know, that, I think that's very uh, much alive as an issue mm-hmm. because, you know, people do see angels. Mm-hmm. People have dead relatives appear to them at the foot uh, of their bed. These people have these, these, these experiences are actually really quite common. Yeah. They're a lot more common than you and I think because, why? Because people are ashamed to talk about them. There are people who will talk about them, but most people have them just shut up mm-hmm. because everyone's just going to tell them they're crazy. You didn't really see that anyway. Um, but if they go to a religious authority and ask for some kind of elucidation, what was this about? Um, a clergyman is not going to be able to tell them because they didn't really study that in seminary. Yeah. You know? Um, you know, they studied, you know, Bultmann and Bart and all these other um, theologians who are uh, at best somewhat abstract. Yeah, yeah. So the last thing I wanted to maybe talk about before before I let you go and we wrap things up is, you know, you mentioned in the book that in that that I thought was really interesting uh, in the Dice Game of Shiva, you mentioned that um, that in the King James translation of the Bible, the kingdom of God is within you. This was the translation, which, you know, we could find many analogous kinds of understandings within the, the Eastern traditions and the mystical traditions. And then, you know, quite arbitrarily or, you know, for their own, uh, for their own, uh, based on their own agendas in later editions, it's been translated in a much less, um, kind of internal experience sort of way. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. What is it? Hey, basilea tu teo, teu entos humonest. That is the Greek. Yeah. The kingdom of God is within. The, there is a the preposition there, entos, entos rather means within. Yeah. It's not one of those ones that can mean either within or among. Yeah. There are words that mean that in Greek. If they meant among, they would have used different prepositions. Mm-hmm. So as clearly as possible in that language, the New Testament was written in Greek, it says the kingdom of God is within you. But um, this is problematic because, uh, again, uh if you want to really baffle, uh, you know, a clergyman, ask a Christian clergyman, ask what the kingdom of God is. Um, they don't know. Uh, well, it has to do with um, uh, divine sovereignty. The kingdom of God has to do with divine sovereignty. Well, that's really helpful. <laughs> um, they just don't know. But, you know, I would, I'm saying that the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, uh, which is within you, is what? 
um, we Hindu tradition we call the Atman, the self. Yeah. Um, and if you understand that, then suddenly a lot, you know, not, suddenly all of the stuff starts to become a lot clearer. Yeah. Um, but if you can't handle that, if you don't know what to do with that, um, you start making these funny translations. Uh, just as a side note, um, I generally tend to quote from the King James Bible in my books uh, because, I mean, it, it is kind of the central monument of English prose, and it's, you know, it, it is that, but it is also the most intellectually honest translation in my view. That is to say, They, they didn't always know what it said, yeah. but they were reasonably honest into translating um, what they thought it said rather than what they thought it ought to say. Mm -hmm. What's an example? We just discussed one. Yeah. Um, now, a lot has been learned since. I mean, there are a lot of problems with it, but it, well, it, strikingly, it is remarkably intellectually honest, uh, and I think that's one of its overlooked strengths. Mm. Off, off the top of your head, are there any other kind of um, notable, you know, besides this kingdom of heaven is within you, notable differences in translation that is is important for, you know, um, what we're talking about in, 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 in being open to the kind of more esoteric, self-realized kind of aspects of, of, of the Bible that's, that are there, that are present there according to that reading? Well, in a way, the most important one has to do with the tripartite nature of the human being. In ancient Christianity, the human being, and this is in the New Testament, um, was conceived of as being a spirit, soul, and body, three parts. Um, later, this was obliterated. And again, if you go to a clergyman and ask the difference between the spirit and the soul, um, it almost certainly you'll get an incredibly vague um, and embarrassed answer. But the spirit, the pneuma, in the Greek of the New Testament, uh, was this, this was the self, this atman. Later Greek, it was called nous, or consciousness. Mm -hmm. um, the soul is what this spirit cognizes internally. What is the word for soul? Whenever you see the word soul in the New Testament, it is a translation of the word psyche, psyche. It's your psyche. It's all the, the, the thoughts, emotions, whatever. And then there's the body. And the body is the sum total of physical experience. Uh, that has certainly been bordered. And if you look at it, well, there's really nothing else. There's something that cognizes. There are the things that uh, it cognizes. Some of these are private, internal. And we call these dreams or fantasies or thoughts. And some of them are more shall we say, collective, and we call these uh, physical experiences. But, you know, all everything kind of pretty much falls into one of those two categories, even, yeah, granted, they overlap. So I think that's very important. Um, and, um, again, uh, oh, by the way, the Apostle Paul um, <laughs> did not believe that the physical body would be resurrected. He said it is sown a natural body, uh, I can get into the Greek of that, but I won't. It is raised a spiritual body. The, f the flesh cannot inherit eternity. So Christianity, in teaching the resurrection of the physical body, is teaching something that is explicitly denied in its own sacred scriptures. <laughs> That's a great way to place to leave it. It's weird. <laughs> 
So, uh, Richard, this has been such an interesting conversation, and I feel like it's a, it's a really, um, it's a, it's a conversation that I've been wanting to have. You know, we've been exploring a lot of um, traditions on this podcast, but we haven't started to, 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 to talk about the intersection between the mystical traditions of the West and, and the East, and I, and I think that's such a, uh, such an interesting and profound conversation to have. So, thank you for for helping me engage it. Um, so, before we close. Uh, do you have anything you want to offer? Do you have any um, workshops? Are you giving any talks or um, uh, anything you want to share about about what you're up to for those listeners that want to um, maybe study more of what you're offering? Well, I, I mean, there are a lot of uh, videos out there of me. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, I would say uh, basically go to my books and, you know, can be found on all websites. The, the two we've talked about are how God Became God, which is about the Bible, and the other is The Dice Game of Shiva, or Shiva, refer, um, which is about um, consciousness, causation. And um, so I guess I would say those. I, my website is called Inner Christianity, um, I-N-N-E-R, so people could visit that as well. Okay, great. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much, uh, Richard. I'm going to put all of those books in the show notes so everybody that's listening or watching can uh, can check them out and 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 purchase them on Amazon. All right, Richard. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, it's been a real pleasure, Richard. And uh, and I'll hope to speak with you soon. Okay. All thank right, you. Bye. Well, there you have it. That was our interview with Richard Smoley. If you'd like to learn more about Richard's books and his teachings, just head to richardsmoley.com. Until next time, friends, namaste.